Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And Stone Cold Steve Austin is back on TAJ. Since he had me on the Broken Skull Sessions on Sunday night on Peacock, NBC streaming service, uh, and the new home of the WWE Network, I decided it'd be fun to have him return the favor and come back to Talk is Jericho so we could do a breakdown of some of the favorite matches of his career. And that's what you're going to hear. We picked some of his best, biggest, and favorite matches and opponents to talk about. So you'll hear some great stories about everyone from Ravishing Rick Rude to Ricky Steamboat to Barry Windham, Chris Benoit. Steve also speaks extensively about his former tag partner, Brian Pillman, and their run as the Hollywood Blondes. We talk about his feud with Mr. McMahon and what Vince was really like in the ring. Steve breaks down um, WrestleMania 13 and the double famous double turn with Bret Hart. And of course, we're talking about his three WrestleMania main event uh, matches with The Rock and their amazing chemistry and box office drawing power. Let's take a walk down memory lane as Steve Austin returns the favor and returns right now on Talk is Jericho. Okay, so uh, back on Talk is Jericho, one of my favorite guests, Steve Austin, and we're still kind of uh, kicking open the forbidden door, which is the new catchphrase that actually Tanahashi and New Japan used it when I worked there last year, and now Tony Khan has taken that to the next level. And we definitely... Uh, kicked open that freaking door when you had me on Broken Skull Sessions, which blew the minds of people in the business and outside the business, just the fact that we were able to do it. And I thought uh, towards it, at the very end of the Broken Skull Sessions conversation that we had, you hit the nail right on the head because everybody's thinking, hey, how can this happen? WWE, AEW. As you said, this is bigger than wrestling. This is about the love of the business. Right. You can't sum it up any more than that. And and that that's, I guess, how and why. And then there was it was a process to get this thing going, as you know. Right. But yeah. like you said, it was all about the love of the business. And I was just glad to have you on the show and reconnect with you, especially when you come all the way out here in the middle of nowhere from down here in Florida. Yeah, it was beautiful, man. It was a great place. And you know me, man. I'm like you. Always be closing, always thinking of, of business and different angles. So doing your show i said well would you like to do would you like to do talk as jericho and we can talk about some stuff and we were thinking about maybe doing it after we did the broken skull sessions but i don't remember how that night ended <laughs> it's one of those ones where i woke up in my bed in my hotel i'm like how did i get here <laughs> man <laughs> i'll tell you what it, it took me a few days to get back on track yeah because they just show me a good time, and I, I'm, I'm willing to stay in the good time zone for quite some time. So, uh, you know, the conversation was incredible. And seeing you, and it, well, you know, the thing about it was there were so many things that went into that because you and I have talked on each other's shows a couple of times. We know each other, and we just talk openly about the business. But then in trying to really give like a, a, a highlight reel of your entire career in one show, you know, virtually impossible to mm-hmm. cover it all. And the way you don't really look back, you look forward. And so you were seeing a lot of this stuff for the first time in years. Right. So it, it was it was, re- it was a real interesting process to go through to kind of a little bit use notes, but try to freelance as well. So I, I think we did a really great job and I was really proud of the show. So and, and I, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, as was I. And like I said, it's, it's always great talking with you. And it was fun going back kind of through my career. And that's why I thought we'll kind of to turn the tables and hit the, the ball back in your court to kind of do a little bit of a, of a walk down memory lane for your career, which is the idea that we had to kind of go through some of your, you know, quote unquote, best matches and see what kind of memories you have for these matches. And where do you even start? in the career of Steve Austin, because you had so many great ones. 
Man, I don't know. I had some really good ones on pay-per-views. I always thought that I had many of my best matches in house shows when you have mm. the freedom to really kind of do what you want and, you know, just call it in the ring. You, you, you might know the finish, and that's about all you know. And it's not about getting into a program with a guy and doing that same match on a tour. I got a funny story for you I'll share with you. Uh, one time, I think we were in, well, it had to been WCW. Uh, Ravishing Recruit was down. Ricky Steamboat was down after that monster run he had in New York. They'd both been on, been really on fire, and they were working on top. And Rick Rude gets injured. And so they said, well, Steve, you work with Ricky Steamboat because, you know, Rude's hurt. Right. And so I went to Ricky, and I said, hey, Ricky, I said, hey, man, he's the veteran. All, all the matches I've had in WCW prior, I've called. But, you know, he'd been working these hot matches with uh, Rude. So I said, hey, man, what do you want to do? And he goes, hey, man, I've been doing this kind of this pretty cool match with Rick. Let's just kind of follow that. Big mistake. <laughs> I said, okay. So we go out there. I believe it's the L.A. Forum. And we kind of do their match. And I'm playing the part of Rick Rude as oh. Stunning Steve. Well, Rick's at the show. He watched the entire match. And you know how this goes, Chris. You know, you can take a few creative liberties, but – Here's what he said, and this is what I always loved about Rick and all those guys are from Minnesota base. He calls a spade a spade. <laughs> and as soon as we walked in the back, dude, I'm just trying to follow along and have a good match, right? Not trying to step on nobody's toes. And the first thing I hear is that big booming voice of ravishing Rick Rude, where I come from, that's called plagiarism. <laughs> and he said he said it with that, hey, are you hearing what I'm saying, Tone? Right. And I got it. it immediately. Dude, he called us out, more specifically me, as I agreed to do it. So we never, ever did that again. But I'm happy to listen to uh, the, the matches that you have. But I feel that I had a lot of my best matches on the road you know, in those towns. Rick Rude w was great. I mean, he passed away so early uh, on. But the, the, the one uh, lesson that I got from him was he said, if you're doing multiple takes of a promo – and if you don't like it, you can never trust that they won't use that one. So always swear at the end of it. That way they can't use it. Because <laughs> he said they, all, yeah. they always pick the one you don't like. Right. <laughs> so um, you talk about WC. I kind of went through a bunch of different ones. And like we said, I'm just going to pick a few of them here at random and see. So you mentioned Ricky Steamboat. And I think your work in WCW is kind of forgotten because of how legendary you became in WWE. But do you recall, I'll, I'll just start throwing some at you, and even if you don't remember the specific match, tell me about some of the stories that you had. This is another one with Ricky Steamboat, Bash, Bash at the Beach 94. Um, it's, it seems one of the ones that you had with Ricky that kind of stands out as one of the better ones. And like I said, even if, as we go through these lists, even if you don't remember that specific match, do you remember specific stories about working with Steamboat? I don't really remember that match specifically, but I work with Steamboat so many times. And I know you looked up to Ricky Steamboat yes. as one of the guys you kind of modeled your career after or your offensive, your in-style ring, ring work, which to me is altogether different than his. Yes. But as an inspiration as it was to you, so you're a fan of his, and he's one of the greatest to ever lace up a pair of boots. And what I always loved about Ricky Steamboat was, <clears throat> even though he had more years in the business with me, he was always willing, because I was a heel, let me call a match. And if he needed to jump in there, he goes, I'll jump in there if I need to. And what I always loved about working Steamboat was, as a babyface, you grab him in a headlock, you might be thinking of your next you know, thing you're going to do. It's going to be a high spot. You're, you might be thinking about this, 
But you ain't got to tell Ricky Steamboat when you have him in a headlock to top wrist lock. He's already going to try to come up out of that hole because he's fighting out of the hold, right? Right. So the thing about working with Steamboat that I always appreciated, anytime you had any kind of hold on him, he was going to try to reverse out of it. Now, if you had him in a reverse hammerlock, he wasn't going to immediately reverse it unless you started doing some chain stuff. But, you know, he was always thinking about that. And he was one of those guys that filled in the gaps that go between the called high spots better than anybody I ever worked with. And as, as a technician, you're like, Brett the Hitman Hart always gets a lot of uh, compliments for his technique and his work. He wasn't really a technical wrestler, but everything he did was so good. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Ricky Steamboat. I mean, they, they could both amateur wrestle. They both did. But they were just so efficient and so good mechanically in the ring. In the Steamboat, you never had to tell him, you can call a high spot, but he's going to fill in the gaps. And when you have that, Chris, that, that guy that – you know, it doesn't matter if it's a hill or baby that just does things instinctively because it makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because when he, when I worked with him at WrestleMania, we had the match where it was me versus Piper, Snuka, and Steamboat. It was kind of like the Legends thing, and I was going to kill all the Legends. And Steamboat hadn't worked for probably, I don't know, 15 years, whatever it was. He was barely in the match in the first place because Vince wanted it to be Piper, Snuka, and Valentine. And I was like, what am I going to do with with that? And he's like, well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be good. It's like, well, it's WrestleMania. I want it to be some semblance of good. So I was able to get Steamboat in there. And he was better than 70% of the roster after not working 15 years that night. Then Vince liked his work so much, he put him in the ring for about six months as a player coach. And that some bitch got to, you know, better than 85% of the guys, 90% of the guys. So I got a chance to work with him quite a few times. And you mentioned house shows to really get the idea of who Ricky Steamboat was as a wrestler. And I agree with you a thousand percent. Even at that later stage, he was still excellent, excellent, excellent. Were you working? I'm assuming you were working heel then. Yes. I was heel okay, and he was baby face. You yeah. know, then when you grabbed him in a headlock or anything, he was always going to try to do the reverse out of something. Yes. And it just made it easy because then all of a sudden, if, you, if, you're, if you're up there at the top in that top wrist lock, I mean, you're just sitting there thinking, okay, what are my options? Yeah, and they are, and you're just you're just free spinning out there, just thinking, okay, man, this 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 is really good because it takes away a lot of the thought process. Let's talk about um, Brian Pillman because you had such a great relationship with him as a team. Was there matches that stood out? I mean, one of them here it says Pillman and and Steve versus Ric Flair and Arn Anderson at Clash of the Champions 23. What was it like working with Pillman as a tag team partner? Because we know his personality and we know his larger-than-life character outside of the ring. But talk about him inside the ring. KG smart. Hmm. Always working for the heat. Uh, always knew when to bring up the crowd, when to bring down the crowd. And Brian and I, when they first put us together, I don't know how excited he was about it, but I wasn't excited about it at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm looking forward for the uh, Dark Side of Wrestling yes. uh, documentary on him to come out. So I got I get a chance to speak on this a little bit. But, you know, once we gelled as a tag team, you know, we didn't really have to communicate a whole lot. And it was a deal where whether Brian went in first or I went in first or just tagging in and out, we knew exactly what the other guy was going to do. And so – we were so much on the same page. It was incredible for for guys with two completely different mindsets and backgrounds initially. But but as a tag team, we we're always on the same page. 
and you know coming off the top rope, doing doing all the stoop the, the stuff that we did. And a lot of people say, hey man, you know the Hollywood Blondes, you know they were, you know one of the some of the greener people will say, hey, they were the best tag teams of all time. No, we weren't. We weren't even close. Mm-hmm. We were maybe in the top thirty uh, or top forty. But had we been together for another two or three years, I have no doubt we would be considered one of the best tag teams of all time because we'd only scratched the surface. Why did they break you guys up? Because we got over. <laughs> yeah, I'm still I'm still searching for that the answer today, and I don't sit there and dwell on it because I don't know in the past. But they broke us up for no reason, and they put us together for no reason because they didn't know what to do with either one of us. Mm-hmm. And you know, as an interim tag team, all of a sudden we go out there and start getting over. Dude, you know how hard it is to get over. And then once you start, you know, you've got this investment of time and television time and effort and thinking of all this, you know, gold chains, gears, name. Dude, I'm totally invested. I'm 100% in. And I fell in love with tag team wrestling. When, you know, I first got into business, you always get in as a single, you know, for the most part. Of course. And, you know, when you're part of a tag team, there's always that inherent risk, Chris, that, you know, you're carrying 50% of the load. And if your partner gets hurt, dude, there you go. You're on your own. So you're in it together. So I never did like to depend on anybody else. So when, when Brian and I got over and all of a sudden they unceremoniously split us apart and made us work against each other, we had some killer matches in Jacksonville, Florida, just lighting each other up. Mike Graham was around back in. And Mike Graham was a really smart guy about the business. And he gave us a lot of insight and, and helped us with our matches. But why they broke us up is a mystery to this day because, man, we we were a commodity and we could have gone as high as they wanted to push us. And that was just the mindset of WCW back then. And I think to sum it up, I think a lot of people found frustration within that system because they could have a short-term or a mid-term plan. So to me, unless you were one of those chosen guys that had the, the look yeah. and the whole package thing together, they could only take you so far and you couldn't get out of that box. At least that's what I found with my experience there. Well, it was the same when I was there too. And to a much lesser degree, Eddie Guerrero and I were kind of a Hollywood blonde-esque uh, experiment that they put us together and we tore the house down and probably only worked a dozen times together. And it was like, why why are we done? Even as baby faces or heels and they didn't really know the reason why. You know, it worked out so good. And it's like you can see the money in this team and the chemistry that we have, similar to what you and Brian had. You didn't even have to think twice. And what Eddie did best, I stayed back on. And what I did best, he stayed back on. And why they ended it, same thing with Hollywood Blondes. I, I, I don't know the reason why. Yeah, it's, dude, I, it's just when you finally get into a position like as I did when I came into WWF at the, at the time, as a ringmaster, nobody. As Stone Cold started catching traction, and dude, after you've been around seven or eight years, and this is one of the things you kind of we, we talked about uh, on Broken Skull sessions, just as far as how hard you worked and how much you had planned out, you know the things that you were doing to pick up knowledge and always be calling, hustling. Mm-hmm. Dude, once you've once you've worked yourself into the spot that I did when I got into New York, I was very. Because I had stroke, I used the stroke because I'd always seen other people have it, and I never had it down, down there in WCW. Like when they were going to break up me and Brian, me and Brian couldn't go to the powers that be and say, hey, if you guys, we ain't getting broke up. We're going to stay together. We didn't right. have that luxury. Right. And right, so right. You, you learn to, as, as you talk about self-preservations and reinventing yourself on, on my show, it's like – 
dude, once you get a little stroke, people think you become a power monger or this guy doesn't want to do business. No, man, it's because when you've had shit yanked from you so many times, it's like I'm holding on to what I got now. You know, F yeah. you. So, yeah. You know, that, that was my mindset. I, I learned a lot from getting jacked around at WCW. Yeah. Yeah. No, so did I. Um, and you mentioned briefly working with Brian, I'm uh, sorry, working against him. There was another clash of the champions that you guys worked against each other and uh, you were managed by Colonel Robert Parker. <laughs> Man, that guy is so funny. And, you know, he's got so much wisdom. You know, he comes back into old territory days, you know, like you and me are pretty old school because broken pretty close to the same uh, era. You're a little bit younger than me. Mm-hmm. But those old school guys, man, you know, Robert, you know, he was a hell of a damn worker, big old lanky guy. And as a manager with that Southern draw, he could talk so much shit, but you could sit with that guy and you could really learn uh, about heat because hell that Welch family started that one territory. What was that? Pensacola maybe or mobile or something, whatever it was, I'm, I'm a little crossed up, but man, those, those guys, he's a wealth of information. I remember talking to, uh, uh, Court Byer at MLW for a while. I guess they had, they had him over there, and you know all those guys would come up to him and ask him questions and you know pick his brain. So when you get guys that have been around that long, if you ain't got no questions for them, you know you, you got your head up your ass because there's a chance to get under a learning tree. And that that was one of the advantages uh, or one of the things that I, you know, counted my blessings when I was down in USWA starving. I was riding up and down the towns with Dutch Mantel. Hmm. And Dutch, you know, God dang, you can't get a brighter mind than Dutch Mantel. And that guy took me under his wing because he knew I was hungry. He knew I really wanted to learn. I didn't have plan B. I wanted to be a pro wrestler. And he's so funny to talk to because sometimes, you know, we'd be trash talking to each other. And I said, let me tell you something. And he goes, you can never tell me anything. But you can <laughs> ask me anything because, you know, he knows more than I do. But those veterans, yeah, going out there with Colonel Parker was was fun. And he helped me as stunning Steve, Chris. I never really, as you as we talked, you always knew the character that you wanted to be. Two years before you got into wrestling school. Well, a couple of years into wrestling, I was stunning Steve Austin. But, you know, Tom Pritchard, you know, asked me what was so stunning about stunning Steve. And I could not tell him. <laughs> right. You know, I had this sequin robe, I had a long hair. It's more of a mindset, this cocky, arrogant guy. But I didn't. I didn't really have anything to to be able to uh, um, an identity, like you talked in groundlings, mm-hmm. or to commit. I couldn't commit to stunning Steve because I didn't know who and what the guy was, and didn't really take the time to really learn who and what he was. I was more focused on mechanics and psychology. And as you know, dude, to, to climb up that system, you you better you know, be thinking about every single thing that goes into it. Another match, and we have one coming up, which will be announced by the time this airs. Uh, we, we call it Blood and Guts, but it's a War Games. And you were in a War Games uh, in 1992, the Dangerous Alliance versus Sting Squadron, which a lot of people say is the best War Games of all time. What do you remember about that whole experience? And do you have any advice for me as I get ready to do my first one? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're always in good shape. Uh, so you never blew, you never uh, blew up, but you need to have a gas tank. So I have plenty of women you sales. I'll never forget that match because there's so much talent involved in that in that match. You know, Barry Wyndham and I had had some just knockdown drag out singles on TV for that television title and US titles and stuff like that. And I always love being in the ring with it. like Barry Wyndham is one of the most underrated guys in the history of the business. And when you just watched him get in the ring, 
just from a dead stride, he would step from from the ground all the way onto the apron, just like a like a gazelle, and hmm. just climb into the rope into the ring. He was so graceful for, for for being such a big guy, and just always so giving to me, dude. I don't know how many times I used to throw a left hand clothesline. This way, Chris Adams taught me back in the day, and I would switch to a right hand clothesline, which felt more natural. But I still have a you know scars on my thumb from hitting him in his teeth because of a misplaced clothesline. <laughs> he never snubbed me back. He never said shit after the match. He never got mad at me. I apologized profusely to him, but in that match, I'll never forget that ceiling of the cage was a little bit low. And there was at one point where the guy gives me like a, uh, like a front atomic drop or whatever, but my head actually hit the top of the cage. That's how low that cage was. So you really couldn't do anything too extravagant. And of course, this is back in what, what do you say? 92, 93. Yeah. But I'll, I'll never forget, man. You know, a couple of us were going to get some color, and uh, I'll never forget Dustin Rhodes was on top of me, or I was on top of him. I think he was on top of me, and he was looking down. He goes, God damn, good color, brother. <laughs> because I hit a pretty good gusher, but right in the middle of that, people don't know how much, you know, communication or ribbing or actual, you know, not, not calling a match, how much communication actually goes on, you know, while you're in a ring. I mean, sometimes it's just one or two words here or there. Sometimes it's a full-blown conversation. Like, hey, man, look, look, look at this over here or whatever. <laughs> right. He, he just had to wear with all because me and Dustin, I'll never forget, one time we was working Phoenix, and it was a shit house. And Grizzly Smith used to be the uh, agent agent that ran the show. And so me and Dustin were working together at night. And, and uh, Dustin said, hey, man, you want to get some color? I said, hell yeah. Because <laughs> we, we never get color every night. And so we went over to Grizz. And Dustin said, hey, Grizz, you know, house is kind of bad tonight. You think it'd be okay? And me and Steve get some color? Yeah, that, that <laughs> might be a good idea. You know, cause he had to make it his idea, right? Right. So he gave us permission to go out there. So, man, we went out there with a couple of gimmicks. And God dang, we had an absolute bloodbath in front of about, <laughs> you know, 1,500 people in Phoenix. And we come to the back proud as a peacock because me and, me and Dustin used to beat the shit out of each other. Real, like, strong style. With respect, Dustin's amazing. Yeah. So we come sure back, just bloody as hell, and here comes Luger. And I'm, I've never really talked to Luger. We were never close. I don't even know if I've ever shaken the guy's hand. And, you know, he's got his fancy colored tights on or whatever. He looks like a million bucks. <laughs> I look like shit. I've been living hard on the road, not been in the gym, drinking alcohol, but working my ass off. And he came out and he was fixing to walk to the ring, and he saw me and Dustin. His eyes got about this big. <laughs> and I could tell immediately that he wasn't on the same page as what we were as far as like, hey, man, if we got to kill ourselves to draw some people in here next time, that's what we're going to do. Because, you know, we're, everybody's on a guaranteed contract. But, you know, Chris, it's always mm -hmm. about trying to give those people, you know, exactly what they expected or more if mm -hmm. possible. And that's what we're trying to do in front of a shit house. You know, uh, just uh, going back to what you said earlier, quick, quickly, is that um, I asked Flair once who, who he thought the best guy was that he worked, and he said Barry Windham. I thought he was going to say Steamboat or Terry Funk, or he said Barry Windham was so good, people don't realize it. And that's coming from Ric Flair. And you go back and watch, they had like a trilogy of matches, kind of like him and Steamboat did with like 88, 90. There's, if you go on YouTube and you just Google in a couple of those dates, 
there's a couple of damn matches. Just the way Flair plays it, he gets the win in a couple of them. The cell jobs by Barry. There's a double percussion. Uh, Barry will take a bump over the top rope. To anybody out there, if you if you Google Flair versus Wyndham, and these are these are on YouTube, eight eight through ninety, there's some ball buster matches of just examples of great in ring work. Speaking of great in ring work, I think one of the first big feuds that that kind of puts you on the map in a lot of ways in WWE was with Bret Hart. I mean, that was the kind of one of your coming out as a true main event uh, superstar. Would you agree with that, with Bret? Oh, definitely. And uh, it was really interesting because, you know, Bret had seen me coming in WCW, as he always says. And I've been an, an admirer of Bret Hart's work. I was a big Hart foundation. You know, uh, him and uh, Anvil, I love them as a tag team. Yes. And I'd been watching Bret for a long time because he'd gotten the business before I did and I remember he was going to do a surgery to get his uh, knee cleaned up, and he needed an opponent for Survivor Series, and he told Vince, hey, man, I can make money with this guy. And uh, I get a phone call from Brett, and he wants to work with me. And so he handpicked me to come back, you know, from his surgery, and we would go out there, and this is, you know, it's an old-school match, uh, Chris. It's kind of classic pro wrestling style. And, you know, if you watch it match back, you know, it's a little bit grainy. We're not digital. The rings might different, but that's a, that's a sold out crowd in the garden. And you know how the garden can be, man. It's a magical place. And without a whole lot of hype or just a whole lot of build, dude, we went out there and just turned in an instant classic. And Brent was coming back. And if you go back and you watch that match and then you watch the finish with that gimmick roll up off of the uh, Million Dollar mm -hmm. Dream, mm -hmm. and then as I roll out, you know, because he's outsmarted me, if you watch his face, and this is a shoot, he, he, he mouths because he's dead dog tired and he was blowed up because, you know, he'd been, <laughs> he'd been at the house, you know, healing up. And it was, it was that grueling of a match that, you know, Bret Hart is one of the greatest of all time. So the fact that he hadn't done a whole lot of in-ring work or none, really, and had to knock a little bit of ring rust off. And I actually, you know, he was gassed. And, but, you know, to that note, Brett was always great 30 minutes into a match of just looking dead dog tired, but right. being fresh as a daisy. But on this occasion, because it was a comeback, you know, he was actually tired after the match because it was that grueling. It was a classic style match that I was very proud of. And at that time, you know, putting in a match like that, Vince started to see, you know, who and what, you know, I could, I could do as a performer as Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I've said, you know, many times that match in the garden, uh, WrestleMania 13, obviously, uh, in Chicago, Rosemont. You know, Bret Hart put me on the map. You know, he made Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I had to do a lot of it myself, obviously. But that's how important Bret Hart was to my career. When you talk about WrestleMania 13, I mean, obviously, you have so many iconic moments, but that finish is still, when people say the Bret Austin finish, everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. People have been mimicking it for years, and they will probably for as long as wrestling lasts. Well, first of all, tell us about that match and that finish, because when you watch that match, you can tell that, I'm assuming, you didn't call a lot of stuff going into that. No, man, it was kind of like we had, you know, like you can see my hand. I got five fingers, and it's like, okay, kind of knew a start, kind of knew a heat spot, kind of knew, you know, a yeah. few things that were going to happen. Then we just filled in the gaps out there. And if you go back and watch that match, 
if you watch me, um, I've got my head down, everything's protected, but you can see who's calling the match. <laughs> I'm calling it. Wow. And, and you know, and, but you, you watch it. But, you know, we had already talked. So anyway, you know, Brett said a few things, but I, I was kind of calling the match. And we just went out there, and I'll never forget, we went into the finish uh, room of Vince, this way back in the day, the way things were, in that old building. And we sat down, and Vince says, hey, man, you guys go do whatever you want to do. You got about this amount of time. But, you know, what I'm seeing, Steve, is you passing out in the sharpshooter from Brett. And I said, uh, you know, Brett was down with it because it was his finish. He was going right. over. Yeah. You know, Brett, Brett went over every single match I ever wrestled him. And I'm cool with it. I didn't really beat the guy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've never wow. beaten Brett in my entire career. And I'm not going to make a comeback to beat him. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are in the finish room. And he says, all right, you guys. He goes, uh, that's all I got for you. So me and Brett go out to the ring. We're just kind of standing there in the apron talking. And they said, all right, man. Said, I'll, be, I'll be right back. I was, and I went back into Vince's office because I'm willing to do business with Brett. No problem. But I'm a little worried about that finish. So I, I go back into Vince's office, and I still, I still don't know him that well at this time. And I said, God dang, I said, Vince, are you sure about that finish? And you know how Vince talks. And he looks at you. He goes, oh, God damn. Oh, God damn, Steve, I'm telling you, it'll work. That's exactly what he said. And, dude, if Vince gives me that reassurance, and he's the guy, right? So I said, okay, I'm down with it. So go back out there, and me and, me and Brett are talking. And he goes... Steve, if you're going to pass out the sharpshooter, you need to have some color. I said, you think? He goes, yeah. And at the time, there's a no color policy. And so, you know, I'm the newer guy. I ain't got no tenure. And uh, you know, that's when Brett offers up. It wasn't that I, dude, I, I'd, gotten, I'd done the business plenty. But under this new, you know, place that I'm in, I ain't got no stroke. He goes, hey, man, if you, if you want, I'll get it for you. I mean, that's insurance policy. He just put me under his umbrella, right? <laughs> and, dude, you know, there, there's a point in there. You know, I hit my head on a guardrail and, you know, accidentally, you know, I got busted open. But that was his idea. And if, on that exchange, when we go to the floor, I told him, I said, judgment call, meaning, Hey, if you want to, get it. But if you don't, don't worry about it because we got these people hook, line, and sinker. Gotcha, yeah. Well, okay. We, you know, of course, he was following through. Dude, I'm so glad he did because, you know, had I would have done the same exact thing, the way I sold that, I, I, it was it was a master. I mean, I can't sit there and blow smoke up my ass. I sold it like a mother, right? But had I not had all that red shit on my face streaming through my teeth, my yeah. goatee, and then you see how much blood I actually lost. And it wasn't one of those gore fests because you can go too hard and get too much. And it just yeah. becomes distracting and just hard to watch. This was not hard to watch. This just added so much level to the struggle that I was going through, but was not just a turnoff. And so when it, it became, as you said, one of the most iconic images, in my opinion, in the history of the wrestling business. I'm not going to say the most but one of the most. Like you said, streaming down your teeth, that's something you don't see all the time. And I still remember it going down your teeth. Dude, it was, a, it was just a fluke. And I've always said, there's so many things that I just fluked up on because I was never going to be the chosen guy. You know, like, uh, you know, guys that Vince has brought in and said, 
you're going to be a world champion. Ain't nobody ever told me that. I went to Vince's house three times before I finally signed with New York because I knew he didn't have no plans for me. I needed mm. the money. So, you know, when I won King of the Ring, it's because those guys had hugged in the garden. And, uh, you know, uh, right. those guys were going down south. Uh, Sean was a world champion. Triple H was going to win King of the Ring. So he couldn't punish his world champion who already had a bad attitude. So he punished Hunter by – you know, I was walking across the parking lot to, to TV in Boston, Worcester, and Lowell, Massachusetts. And Ben says behind me, he goes, hey, Steve, you got a second? I'm like, yeah. He goes, I just want to let you know in two weeks you'll win King of the Ring. I said, all right, cool. So it was just these flukes, things, Chris, that, that would happen. And then when I won that that uh, King of the Ring, I came up at Austin 316 because Stone Cold said so. So, you know, this making chicken salad out of chicken shit. And so, like, you know, again, going, going back to the color, you know, wasn't my idea. It was, it was Brett's, you know, it was Vince's finish, you know, and Brett says, right. hey, if you're going to do it, this is how it ought to be. And so just the fact that I had a bald head and just the way blood flows down my – I always worked good with color. <laughs> but that was Brett's idea, and it was just another fluke that, you know, if he hadn't thought of it, I'd have never said it. What did Vince say to you when you came back through? Here's one of those things. Chris, when, when Vince, when the old man lays down a law, dude, that's the gospel. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. Because as you know, like you were saying, hey, man, like for you, Tony Khan is your boss. You know, yeah. the, the buck stops with him. Well, you know, Vince has been around so damn long, the buck really stops with him, especially back in the day. Well, to this day. Yeah. So anyway, you know, we go out there and, you know, like, uh, you know, like when you go out there and you, you, you feel like, I knew we rocked the place, <laughs> but, you know, kind of, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to know that we rocked the place. And, and as soon as I came in the back, Michael Hayes comes up to me, and he's the guy that told me about Jake cutting the Austin, you know, the religious promo on me to give me the wherewithal to create Austin three sixteen. So that was another fluke. So here comes Michael Hayes, and you know Hayes, you kind of gets those big eyes, he goes like that, like we crushed it. And then a couple of people came up to me, started patting me on the back. like, God, because, dude, it was that kind of match. Especially right, it if you was. Especially in real time and you were there. It's easy to go back and watch it. But when you're there and then, you know, the guys had to follow that. I, I knew we had a motherfucker on our hands, an instant classic. And I never heard a thing from uh, Vince. He, he didn't say nothing because he knew that we went out there did a double turn and just, I was going to be a monster after that. And when you do something and execute something at such a high level with such a high rate of success, <laughs> he ain't going to say nothing because dude, it's, it's hard to capture lightning in a bottle. And on that night we did. So he never said shit, which is crazy because like you said, what can he say? But still he knows deep down. He's not like I've been through many times where it's like, Oh, I got busted open. Bullshit. Yeah. You know, exactly. And he ain't no dummy, but but also like like come on. Vince is Vince is the greatest promoter that ever lived. Of course. Okay. So you know how smart that guy is. When all of a sudden he sees dollar signs and he smells money like he did with you and Sean. Yes. That, that was the thing I wanted to ask you talk about, you know, like when Vince says I smell money, people are like, Oh, what does that mean? Hey, we're talking box office money. Yes. He sees money too. So dude. When, when all of a sudden he books something and turns in to something 10 times better than he even thought, he ain't going to say shit. He'll take credit for it. Just tell him it was his idea. Absolutely. <laughs> he could take all the credit he wants. Well, speaking of that, I mean, obviously that was kind of the, the stepping stone to, the, to like you mentioned, 
Because you, your biggest rival as Stone Cold Steve Austin was Vince McMahon. And Vince was never an on-screen character. He was the, the commentator and, you know, he would do in-ring interviews. But he became Mr. McMahon, this gigantic character. Tell us a little bit about, about how that kind of organically started rolling. Man, it just started where it being a thing where, you know, I kind of outed him on one time. You know, we was out there, I think it was Garden. It might have been the night I stunned him. And I, and I said, uh, you know, Vince, I said, you know, he's talking about whoever the, the, the president of the company was. I said, everybody knows you're the one, you know, writing all the checks around here. I but, you know, I said, you're the guy's really doing all this. Right. And, you know, he'd already, he was already on that, that swing anyway to being Mr. McMahon. But it was like... <sighs> He's real interesting, Chris, because as long as you've been in the company, uh, when you were when you were in, in WWF, you know that when you go there, you like you have this this reverence. You always have this respect for Vince. But the more you work with him, and at the higher level that you are on the card, the closer you become with the guy, because you know you're really in this together, and it's a collaborative effort. They're giving you time, money, and investing TV time in you, and they're paying you. But I mean, this is your job, so it's a, a joint effort. To, someone to strap a rocket strap a rocket ship to your back and you'd be able to be smart enough to navigate all the shit that you've got to go through to make right decisions to be able to get monster over so man we became really close and you know we would go out there and and vince would always trust me if i doubted one thing that that he said or or, or whatever i'd say god because he always had the great master plan i've never been a guy that was good at a master plan I'm a guy, if you give me a scenario, like if you give me a good steak, a really good filet mignon, dude, I can put some salt and pepper on some shit to make that steak that much better. And so sometimes we would go out there and I said, God damn, Vince. I said, I just don't feel it. He goes, what are you thinking? He goes, I think we're going to do this. He goes, damn, you're right. And he would, all, you know, and I wasn't always right. But the thing about Vince was he was always willing to listen to me. And he always says, God damn, Steve, he goes, you, you got the best gut instincts of anybody in the business. Because when you're deep in an angle, dude, I, I'm, I'm like a sensory overload guy. I feel everything that a crowd's given. And, and I can hear them. I can, I can sense them. I feel the energy. I feel the heat. I feel what's over. I feel silence. I feel strength. That's how in tune I am with the crowd, dude. I'm like a big ass antenna out there soaking in all this information and processing stuff. And and uh, I kind of got sidetracked here. You just talking about Vince and kind of the, the the rivalry between you two. What I loved about that guy was, you know, he always wanted to be an in ring performer, but his dad would never let him in the business. That's so, right. You know, he promoted Banger Man. And he bought the territory from his dad. So when he got a chance to work with me, he was like a kid in the candy store, and he was. Okay, Brett the Hitman Hart was so important in my career, and I had a great few of them. The Rock, unbelievable, right? Fantastic. And I headlined three WrestleManias with him. But really, that feud between myself and Vince was so about as real as you can get because, you know, when you have that chemistry with someone, it's kind of like because he was the boss and, and everybody has a boss and sometimes they want to punch up their boss in the mouth. Everybody was living vicariously through that right. storyline. And even if you weren't a wrestling fan, when you started hearing about this shit, you started tuning in because this was finally, you know, the blue collar guy, you know, beating his boss up. Yeah, that's the simplified version of it. When you're in the ring with Vince, I mean, like he, he reflected to me or, or, or the energy that he put towards me. It, it was like 
a, com a complete match as far as all systems go, two, two systems meshing. And I felt like the love that people had to, to, to love me and the, the hate that he was projecting on me and the energy that we're projecting to each other was, it was such a force that it's hard, it's hard to say, like you were saying, not to get metaphysical the other day on Broken Skull Sessions, but it, it's hard to explain the dynamic that we had, the, the feeling that we had. And dude, as an opponent, he was clumsy as hell, but he was such a showman. And for a guy without any experience in the ring, yeah. a guy that only watched matches and given finishes to matches and told people how to do matches for years, dude, he was amazing in the ring. He always took his time. He was so over the top, but it made sense. He was he was the ultimate showman. And he was, you know, to, to, to really be honest, I mean, you work with a guy that's been in the ring eight or nine years. He'd been in the ring, what? at his gym in the ring for two months yeah and he's working on top so i thought i did you know mechanically he's clumsy but jesus as a worker and a field guy a genius let's talk about a match that that a lot of people say is one of the best matches in raw history i think at one point it was even voted the best match in raw history by a lot of critics and that's austin and triple h versus jericho and benoit for the tag team championships. And that's the night where Triple H tore his quad in uh, San Jose, I believe it was. Do you remember that match? Dude, I remember parts of that match. And I just remember we were lighting it up. Yeah. And we had that crowd going crazy and so much good shit in there. And it was so hard for me to be a heel. And I love being a heel. But when I turned... Uh, in, in 17 and, you know, started the two-man power trip with Triple H. That alignment helped me as a heel. Mm -hmm. But basically, my, my whole heel turn, you know, as a single, I was swimming upstream. With Triple H, I was just kind of out there, you know, on, on even ground. Yeah. And so it was hard to, for, for people to, to hate me. But due to the things that we were able to do, due to the fact that you guys were so over, and that that was – all I remember was just a lightning uh, – electric crowd and we were rocking them and all of a sudden i remember triple h blowing out that quad and i was like oh shit you know we finished the match mm -hmm. but what, what it could have been would, that would have been really interesting what do you remember about that match i think i think it's one of those things that because he tore his quad that's why it's become so legendary you know what i'm saying like it because we see you know thousands of great matches and maybe dozens that had that type of electricity because people were so invested in it but when he tore his quad, because I remember I was, I had you in the walls, and he came in from behind and hit me, and then I remember he went down like a like a like a sack of laundry, and I was like something was supposed to happen. I don't remember what it was, but I was like, what happened? Like, did he forget the spot? And then I went with to the floor with him, and he said, I think I tore my quad, and I was like, okay, not panicking because we're on live TV, you know, we're all pros here. What do you want to do? Because I was supposed to put him in the walls on top of the desk. And then he said, do it. And I'm like, okay. So I tried to do it as gingerly as I could. But dude, this guy's the walls of Jericho is a Boston Crab, which is based around a leg. Then I came back in and, and I made the save on you and Chris. And then I had done something where I hit you with something. And he's supposed to come in and I move and he hits you with the sledgehammer. And I'm like, there is no freaking way. He's going to do this. The finish is going to be a, a moonsault on Steve. I mean, and then lo and behold, he was there. 
And I'll never forget, like, this guy, like, all the trials and tribulations that we talked about with Hunter and, and, and all this stuff, I was like, this guy is a tough, tough dude, you know, to he be is, able to come yeah, in and finish but, that. But, dude, it's just like when I was asking you about uh, your time in AEW, it's like, you know, like, you go in there and start preaching. And like you said, you, you kind of got a line of people asking you questions because when y'all started AEW, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of guys that were, had worked live television. Right. And here you are, like you said, you've been a pro for how long? And a guy goes down and like, oh, no big deal. We're on live TV. But, dude, that's when the gears start turning. Yes. And it, it's making an improv or, or working with the situation at hand to make everything come out whole, hit that, that time stamp on the way out, and get the job accomplished that you were sent in to get accomplished. So, yeah, man, it's like, yeah, man, we're only on live TV. God blows his squad. You know, it was like when I got dropped on my head in 97 by Owen. I got dropped on my head. I was paralyzed. I couldn't do shit. I'm laying there. I'm thinking, you know, the stipulation was if I don't win, I got to kiss his ass. I'm thinking to myself, ain't no way I'm kissing nobody's ass. <laughs> I'm going to follow through with the angle. And that's why I told Hebner, I said, after after I told him to buy time, I said, roll up for the win. Worst roll up in, 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 in the world. Right. But my point is, when you're out there, is live, live, and you've got a job to do, you do whatever it takes to get the job done. That's what I did. That's what Triple H did. That's what we've all done because you're a pro. Yeah, exactly. And then you have no choice. Speaking of a, a guy who, you know, was, was a pro and became a very quick, talking about Kurt Angle. You guys had great chemistry outside the ring. People remember, you know, Jimmy Crackcorn and all that horseshit singing that you guys did and all <laughs> But in the ring, there's a classic match from SummerSlam. And I remember this match. I don't know if you remember the match specifically, but working with Kurt, uh, he was a great rival for you. And he was he was another guy that was a great chameleon. He could morph into whatever style he needed to to work with who he was working with. What I always liked about Kurt was, you know, like like Benoit, he had that that really super intense style. Mm -hmm. Just amazing. And if you didn't match his intensity, you know, you it wasn't going to be so great because that's how intense he was. Kurt Angle along those same lines, but he could dial it down a little bit more and he'd slow down. Benoit was amazing, amazing talent. Uh, but, but Kurt Angle, I remember that match. And it was funny. Well, it's not funny. It's, it's interesting, Chris, because when I turned heel after 17 and, you know, in the rock, and I wish I would have never done it. I wish I would have called an audible, but I was a heel. And as you talked on Broken Skull, Dude, when you commit to something, you know, just like you, dude, I am in. So I'm going to go to the end of the world, even though nobody wants to hate me. I'm kind of John Wayne in the wrestling world at that time. No one really wanted to hate me, uh, but I was going to do everything I could to make you hate me. So I was committed to, to doing that. But if you'll notice during my heel, heel run, the heel I turned into after 17 was a different kind of heel than I rolled into. As I, from the ringmaster, I turned into Stone Cold Steve Austin. Dude, I was just beating people's ass, cheating when they'd let me, and talking all that trash. I, I used to you know, grow up here in South Texas. I couldn't be that same heel when I switched against Rock again because that was the cool heel that turned me baby, right? Right, right. So it was an interesting way for me, the way I was playing the hill that I was to go to the comedy stuff, that was because I had three broke bones in my back and they were shooting me full of Toradol every night and I couldn't work. But you got to do something. As, as we talked about with you in your 30 years, 
when all of a sudden the business deals you a shit sandwich and it's like, okay, I can't get no heat on nobody. Let me just entertain people and just do pull shit out of my ass to try to stay alive because you don't want to get sent home. You're a big right. part of the show. So you start inventing these things to do. And most of that stuff was ad lib and on the fly. But to go to that match with Kurt, I thought that was uh, really one of my, my better or best matches as a, as a heel when I was super aggressive, very vicious, attacking a body part, being relentless, and just beating the shit out of Kurt. And of course, you know, Kurt's stud, man. You know, that guy can, can do it all. And I've never seen anybody gravitate to the business as fast as he did. But it was it was it was just a great match that I was really proud of. You you mentioned Ben. Well, there's a match I remember. I believe it was in Edmonton. Uh it was a SmackDown, I think it was. You guys had a great match. It was not on a pay-per-view, but you and Chris had, once again had great chemistry where you might not think that at first, but you guys were just perfectly matched. Well, here's the thing, and that, that, that was one of my favorite matches uh, with Chris because I'd been a fan of his forever. You know, right. I just could never never really cross paths until we did. So I knew of his work as Pegasus and all that other stuff. And we went out there on Monday Night Raw the night before, and we'd had an average match. And they put us short on time because Raw was live or was live to tape. I can't remember what it was. Right. But next night, we're in his hometown, Right. Edmonton or wherever he's yeah, It from. was Edmonton, yeah. It was Edmonton. Okay, his hometown. And it says Stone Cold versus Chris Benoit. I said, all right. Okay, remember a while ago when I told you about, you know, Bret Hart put me underneath that umbrella when he says, you know, I'll get it for you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I, I said, hey, dude. I said, it's you and me. I said, they're only going to give us about uh, 14, 15 minutes. I said, if the referee says go home, I said, don't listen. I said, we're going home when I say go home. And he goes, okay. He knew that I took it, put, put the umbrella up. And if there was going to be any heat, I was going to go right to the man and say, it was me. Mm-hmm. So we went out there and I remember before the match, the only thing, dude, this is the hand. We had five things that dive off the top. I was going to throw up the belt. He got accidental color on that. There was just a few things, but we call that the damn ring. And that was a hot-ass crowd because he was over. He was the baby. I was a heel. They wanted to hate me, and they did love him. So we went out there, and we told the story that we did. Then here comes Vince. The finish goes down like it does, and I limp off with my championship belt. Before we went out there, I told him, I said, Chris, I just didn't – you know how you feel about certain matches? It's almost like you tell a story about you coming up with the uh, finish of the match with you and Sean. And yeah, you know, at the beginning, yeah. All of a sudden, you just get – you get flashes of ideas. It's like, oh, yeah. You don't just create it in one, one session. And you hear about all these musicians writing these hit songs in five minutes. Yeah. Waffle yeah. House on a napkin. So it's kind of like one of those things. That's I true. Said, I said, dude, I just don't see you making a traditional comeback on me. It's because right. that's not what I see. I, I see you give me 10 Germans or a belly to back, whatever they are. I see you give me 10 of those, and then we go into the finish. He goes, you know, Chris, man, he's such a good dude. It's, it's yeah. tragic. Yeah. And, and, and I, I just said, he goes, I like that. And uh, so we went out there and did it. And then this is one of the best compliments I ever got in my whole career, Chris. He knew what I did for him. He knew how hard I worked, you know, to get his ass over, to have a great match. I always want to have a great match with anybody I work with because we both get over. But he, he had such an understanding of the business. We're back there. You know, Chris was a man of a few words. If yeah. you really, unless you really knew him, you know him a lot better than I did. And uh, we didn't just sit around and shuck a jive all the time. We just, you know, we talked. We were friends. 
and had a lot of uh, mutual respect for each other. And uh, we shook hands and he looked me dead in the eyes, Chris. He goes, man, he goes, thank you. He goes, you really got me over in that match. And that meant so much to me because he knew that I was busting my ass to do my best to get him over. And for, for him to just say, hey, man, you got me over right after a match, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I very mean, you, don't, you don't hear that from – you don't hear people say, hey, thank you for the match. But, dude, at his home crowd, we put it all in line. He goes, you really got me over. I appreciate that. I don't think a lot of guys understand that. You know what I mean? That's why you don't hear it a lot because I don't think a lot of guys understand – how you would get somebody over and how you, how, how that works. You know, like you said, well, thanks right, for the match, yeah. but thanks for going the extra mile in front of this crowd, which then translates on TV. Like if you don't know where Chris Ben was from, you just see this crowd going nuts for this guy because Steve's making him look so good and vice versa. That makes another star. Yeah. And the way that finish went down, I mean, by all rights, he could have been and should have been, could have been the world champion. Yes. I yes. just happened to skulk off with the title. <laughs> he was a major player. I was so happy when Vince put that belt on him first time. I was so happy for Chris and mm-hmm. him and Eddie went out there and they did that hug and everything like that. And I told Vince to his face, I said, man, I said, I really think, I, th- I think you can draw some money with this guy. And, you know, he, you know Vince, he goes, God damn, I, I, I hope so, Steve. But I was a fan of Chris from day one. As we start to wind down here, you mentioned him a few times, and it's one of the, the, the greatest rivalries in WWE history. And you mentioned uh, headlining WrestleMania three times. I'm not sure that's ever happened before and will probably never happen again, talking about The Rock. Talk about the chemistry you have with him, and then I want to talk specifically about a couple of those matches. But just talk about, the, the, like you said, what a great rivalry you guys had that was able to draw enough money to headline WrestleMania, not just once, but three times. Man, it's one of those things you can't explain that, uh, you know, sometimes for, for whatever reason it is, you just have this next level chemistry with the guy and you have chemistry with a lot of people. And as a pro, you just, you know, whether you've got chemistry or not, you make things work and, and do the best you can. Mm-hmm. But they're just because there's for some reason, there's those dream matchups and same with Brett. But, you know, Rock was a rock and he was, you know, electric, right? Right. Most electric guy in, in sports entertainment. For some reason, you know, I, I brought out the best in him and he brought out the best in me. And, you know, I, I saw him coming up. I saw him go through the struggles. I saw him, you know, people say die, Rocky, die. And that terrible white meat baby face gimmick, you know, that they, you know, bestowed upon him when he came in. But you could see, you know, hey, man, this guy has everything. Looks, size, you know, good looking dude, athletic. Built, you know, third generation. I mean, you, the writing was on the wall. Yes, man. he's got it all. And then all of a sudden, yeah, man, when they put him in the nation, he started, you know, rising up out of that. And he started wearing those silk shirts. It's like someone kind of said, hey, man, I knew that we were going to be doing business. And then, you know, it was like up to me. I could have said, it was kind of like when, when Brett picked me to work with him. It's like, I said, yeah, I'll work with The Rock. And there we were. You know, I think he's always you know, acknowledge the fact that, hey, man, you know, Austin said, cool, I'll work with you. And I, and I did. And I loved it because I loved working with The Rock. Every time we went out there, whether it was a house show or those three WrestleManias, went out there to rock the house. And we went out there to Philly and we did that build up, I think, with the, with the uh, beer truck. And I sprayed them down. And it was about going to the SmackDown Hotel and checking in room 316 and burning that summit to the ground. We had a great build up. We're going to uh, WrestleMania that night. We're going to the ring. I'm going to get dressed. 
shit, I was going through a divorce at the time. My head was in another place. I forgot my freaking ring vest. <laughs> I'm like, Chris, you know me. I ain't a fancy guy, but that, that damn black leather vest was everything to me. That was my gimmick, man. Yeah. That was a SOB, DTA, BMF, whatever it was. Dude, that was my mantra. And all of a sudden, you're on the biggest stage in the world, and you ain't got your effing vest? So there I am walking to the ring at 15 in the biggest show of the year in that rattlesnake T-shirt, cool-ass shirt. But I didn't wear that friggin' T-shirt to the ring so I could sell a bunch of them. It was the only <laughs> thing I had to do to go, you know, rather than to walk into the ring with a pair of you know black trunks and black boots on. How <laughs> vanilla and stupid and jaybrone is that? I was so mad. Anyway, so we, we, had a, we had a really good match at 15. I thought that was a good match there in Philly. A couple of years later, 17, you know, was off the charts. One of my favorite matches of all time. Uh, go ahead and ask me those questions specifically, though. No, but I mean, like I said, you're kind of getting you're kind of getting to it is is if you had to choose which one of those three is your favorite, does one of them stand out? 17. Yeah, that's you know, everybody knows 17 is the one. Hell, it was just the anniversary date. As we're talking, this, this will air a few weeks yeah. back, but it was just the anniversary of that match a few weeks ago. So everybody remembered it on Twitter and Instagram and so I, you know, I was looking back at it, that build-up package. I remember when we did that stuff, that toast and that beer in Detroit. It was either Kobo or what, whatever the other place was we ran over there. Joe Lewis. Was Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis or Kobo. It was either one of those because we worked both of them. And those were both damn good buildings for me for some reason. And we went out there, and that was that deal where we were going to you know, share a couple of beers. But when I give that beer to him, I hit him in the chest with it. And it kind of foams up on his shirt. And then – you know, we do that toast and it kind of, you know, he pulls that microphone out of my hand. There's that magic moment. And that was still to this day, people say it's the best buildup package for uh, a pay-per-view and that my way from Limp Biscuit, And then uh, the classic interview between me and Rock and Jim Ross would really set the stage and the stakes were high. And we were going to be in Houston, Texas at the Astrodome and Dude, I grew up, man, I've been to baseball games there. I've been to rodeos there. I mean, that's my backyard. That's 100 miles from where I grew up. And, man, we went out to dinner that night at a real nice steakhouse. Had, had a bottle of wine and ate a steak. Pat Patterson was there. We kicked around literally a couple of ideas. And, you know, Rock's at the time not, didn't really drink mm -hmm. and had his steak. And he's always eating rice and potatoes and stuff like that. We We go. We go to back home or he does this thing, I do mine. We meet up at the building that day and, you know, it was just, they hit my music first because he was a champion. I hit them corners, man. And I've been in some big ass buildings in front of a lot of crowds. That was, a, that was a feeling. If you could bottle that shit and sell it, you'd be a billionaire mm -hmm. and you know, it's legal and it's not harmful to you. The adrenaline spike that you get from a, from a crowd high is unbelievable. And you live and die by that. And when you go out there and you get that affirmation of all the hard work that you've put into this angle and your career to get you to this point where it's going to be a big payoff, uh, payoff to the, to the people as far as accomplishing the goal, it's just amazing. And then Rock comes out and, man, he blows the roof off the place. And you're sitting there because, you know, you've been there a million times. You want to go out there and get the best reaction you can, whether <laughs> it's positive or negative, because – a, a, a 10 out of 10 is positive either way because you either want to be loved or you want to be hated. You don't want to be somewhere in the middle. And dude, there was two 10 level interests out there. 
And Rock and I have always liked to jumpstart our matches for some reason. That's when they, a lot of them <laughs> happen. And, dude, we, we started that match, and from, from start to finish, just had those people hooked and hooked deep and took them on a damn ride. And a lot of times, and Rock was super over as a baby, but that was a Texas crowd. Mm. And I know people come from all over the world, but that's basically a Texas crowd. And a lot of times, he'd start teeing off on me. They'd, they'd kind of start booing him a little bit. But he was super over as a baby. I had to cheat to win. And that's when I turned heel. But it was just one of those. It was just one of those classic matchups of so much action, and you know the the Dudleys, uh, the Hardys, and Edge and Christian had already ripped it up in a TLC or ladder match, whatever it was. They crushed it. The whole and the dude, one of probably my favorite entrance of all time. Triple H goes out there. You know you're a big rocker. Motorhead is there, and dude. Yeah. Lemmig is out there. God rest his soul. And goes, we're motorhead. We're going to kick your ass. And dude, <laughs> you know, they always kind of played with kind of like a, not a whole lot of bass, but kind of mid bass. Really. Yeah. Yeah. But dude, they hit that song and, and he was just on fire. And dude, I know he was in the zone. If you know what I'm saying, he had those damn sunglasses on and they let him play for about a minute. <laughs> and finally, you know, and, and he was just rocking. And finally, here comes Triple H, and they acknowledge each other. And Lemmy never puts him over. He's just looking at him because you can't see through those lenses. <laughs> yeah. And he's just, just on a power trip up there playing that damn bass and singing. They sounded like a million bucks. I remember when they did the sound check, everybody's blown away. Yeah. And Triple H goes out there, and he's going to work with Undertaker. Undertaker rides that badass chopper down there. So everybody got off. And then we had to follow a hellacious card. And by – Many accounts is considered one of the best WrestleManias of all time. I, I would agree. And to be able to follow the boys when everybody has like a great showing and as the main event, you've got to top everybody. I thought we did. Yeah, absolutely. And you, But you did it again the third time in 19. And I know there was some issues with you before that one, but that was a, another great one with, with Rocky in Seattle as well. Man, I, I never really watched that one back. That was uh, you know, bad like memories. That that, yeah, that, that day before, you know, my, my heart wigged out. Dude, there was nothing wrong with me. I was just living, you know, real hard. Mm. And shit just kind of hit the fan. No permanent damage from nothing. But wasn't a heart attack. Wasn't an anxiety attack. It was just shit hit the fan. And, you know, they didn't really even release me. You know, I just, they said, okay, you can go. But we're technically not saying that you can wrestle. Wow. And I, no, no, I was never cleared. And I said, well, what are, you know, I'm damn sure going to wrestle the rock. You know, and this is the last one, and Rock's going over. And uh, we went out there, and we, we did about as good as we could. Could have been better. But, you know, I remember Jim Ross rode to the building with me. I can't remember who else was in the car, but, man, it was one of those days I had on my XFL football shirt and got to the building, Safeco Arena. There would be about 70,000 people there, and they had it lit up like a fucking Christmas tree. The building looked phenomenal. And I remember walking through the locker room. Cameras following me because they're documenting all this. And, dude, nobody knew this was going to be my last match other than about five or ten people. None of the boys knew. I think the Rock knew. He did. And uh, I smartened him up. And uh, we went out there. And, dude, that whole that whole day, you, you'll probably never – maybe you'll never have this feeling because you've lasted for 30 years and your retirement will be a little bit different. Will definitely be different. But, you know, I was – Pulling the plug on myself due to the neck injuries that I that I'd suffered in the past, 
things were catching back up with me. And I didn't have a doctor saying, you must quit. This was like talking to Dale Earnhardt when he pulled the plug on his racing career. He had had so many concussions that he had to pull his own plug. And that's the hardest thing to do because you want someone to be able to say, you have to quit and here's why, you know? So yeah. you listen to a medical professional. I'm not a medical professional, but I know what I've heard from my medical professionals. And I'm looking at, you know, a real good chance of something bad happening if I'm in there with the wrong person and the wrong thing happens. So that was going to be my last match. And I was so emotional about it that if I talked to anybody that day, and I didn't hard talk to anybody that day because I couldn't, because I'd well up and damn near start crying because that's how mm. hard it was going to be to leave the business for me. And it took me a long time to adjust to life after the ring. And I'll never forget we went out there and at rock, he hit me with those three rock bottoms. And on that last one, man, he just, he picked me up and he slammed the shit out of me. He always took care of me, you know, but yeah. <laughs> it just looked like a million bucks. You you knew that that was the final nail in the coffin. And Earl had that three count. And I was like, that was another thing, like laying in 13 in that pile of blood. I was like, we did it. And this one, I was like, someone just lifted a thousand pounds off my back. It's like, dude. You're not in harm's way anymore. Mm. You know, I was at peace with it. And I'd go home and then to my room at night and drink some beers and just kind of process everything. But it was a weird night. It was a weird night and an emotional night that took me a long time to recover from. But but it was cool to uh, headline three uh, WrestleManias with Rock. One more quick Rock story before you, before you ask me another question. I'll never forget American Airlines had... Uh, just built that brand new building in Dallas, Texas. And and Vince gives me a call. He goes, hey, he was uh, American Airlines just opened up a new building in Dallas. And we'd like uh, you and Rock to break it in for the first wrestling card. I said, well, hell yeah. So Vince books a card. We go to Dallas. Everybody works. Me and Rock and the main event is sold out. Uh, as I said, me and Rock like to jumpstart a lot of our matches. So, man, all of a sudden I jump his ass and get him in the back of the turnbuckle. Wham, 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 wham. Except I'm missing by about four to six inches on each one I'm with him. And so I said, spin me around because I wanted him to get his shit in. He goes, wham, wham, wham. He's missing by about four to six inches. I spun him back around. I said, God damn. I said, one of us is going to have to hit each other before we kill this building. <laughs> Just a quick story. That's all it was. I said, God damn, we got to make some contact here. We're going to kill this building right off. Do you remember this one? when we It was the night before we did the uh, Undisputed uh, Championship Tournament. And we were in, uh, I think we were in San Jose again. And it was me and Kurt versus you and Rock. And Kurt put you in the ankle lock. And I put Rock in the walls of Jericho. And you guys were face to face. And one guy was going to tap. And you're like, no! You stop him from tapping. And the other guy's going to tap. And you're like, the other guy grabs, no! <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Dude, I always love the guys. You know, like, especially you go back and watch some of those rock and roll uh, midnight matches or rock and roll yes. arm tolly matches. We'll get the, the baby faces. We'll get the heels. And too, like, you know, each of them will have a submission. Or in this case, like, in many of the matches, it was a double figure four. And it's like, God dang. And the people are coming unglued because that's what they did back in the day. Yeah. Just so, yeah, people would just be having fun. Yeah, because that was, that was the way it was. Last couple of things for you, Steve. Did you ever consider coming back seriously? Because I know people were begging for it for years and years and years. Man, I really, you know, I think Vince tried to talk me into coming back a couple of times. And 
Damon had me talking to it one time. But man, I just, you know, Chris, I love the business so much. I can't say I love it more than anybody else. I can only speak for myself, but I, I, I just, I love the damn business. And it hurt me so much to leave it. And to me, just like going back for one match, be like, man, why? You know, what am I proving? You know, what are they going to remember? You know, it, it ain't about the money. You know, it's about, you know, I, it took me a long time, damn near three years to get over the fact that I, I left the business. And now, if you're really going to make a comeback, okay, let's say it was going to be a high-profile match. It's going to be like a WrestleMania. You know, like, you know, Taker, when I talked to him, you know, he trained all year or recover mm. or have a surgery and then right. train for a three- or four-month camp to get ready for one match. So you would really have to undergo a three or four, I would have to undergo a three to four month camp. And I'm like, okay, I'm one of those guys where I don't have an addictive personality. Okay. But I'm addicted to the wrestling business. And so all of a sudden, if I'm going to put in all that hard work and get back right. to being around the ring, being around the, 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 the business that is my number one, I can honestly say that the wrestling business is one of my number one passions in my life to get hooked on it again, just for one match. And to me, it'd be so. It would have been so anticlimactic. Yeah. To go out there and do it, and then whatever the finish was, and then the people go home. But what? What did it all mean in the big picture? And Stone Cold had had a comeback, and he, hey, the match was a three and a half. Meltzer five star rating. That ain't great right. enough. You know what I'm saying? So it was like you know. And even if I crushed it, what would it mean? I, if I can't be 110% Stone Cold Steve Austin, or if I couldn't have been, whatever, I'm, I'm not going to do it now. You know, it just wasn't worth doing. So I just said, man, stay away. And I, I, I've stayed away. Last question for you. Looking back at all these matches and all the, the, the great ones they had in your career, is there one that stands out as your favorite? Yeah, you know, that, that match with Bret Hart, WrestleMania 13, is a real special match to me because not often – not often is it required or, or, or asked of two talents to go in there and execute a double turn. There's a lot of guys in the wrestling business don't even know what a double turn is. Right. And, you know, there's got to be work on the back, back end to solidify a story, but it starts with the in-ring match. And to go out there and do it, first time I've ever attempted to do it was one time, and I was with Brett. And to, pull, to execute that at the highest level, to end up in that sharpshooter with that iconic image, which is will always be remembered, to leave that lasting memory was very special to me. 17 was very special to me to, to work with The Rock and rock the house, no pun intended, like we did damn near in my hometown against a guy that I really loved being in the ring with so much. That was one of those rides where sometimes it'd be like, I've heard people, and I, I'll, even, I'll harp on this, but people say, oh man, shit, Austin had about three moves. Okay, yeah, yeah, whatever, three, four, you know, a right hand and a, uh, a right foot and a, a Luthez and a stunner, about all I had. But goddamn, you know, we, we sold some tickets and we made people happy. We told stories. So that, that yeah. match uh, just, yeah, because I always talk about feeling the crowd. And, dude, when, you, when I go back and I rewatch a match like that in a rare event that I do, I, again, I turn back into that antenna, and I just feel all these those emotions of the the ride that you're taking those people through. So, those two matches, and you know, there's there's been a lot of other ones. There's been a lot of a lot of matches with high profile people that didn't turn out so well, and you, you dwell on those. But those are the ones that immediately come to mind, and the ones I had with Vince were special to me as well, just because you know it was Vince, and 
you know, working with your boss and him trying to be the most hated man in the world is a pretty cool feeling. Well, you might have had three or four moves, but ACDC has three or four chords, and they're uh, one of the biggest legends in rock and roll, and you're one of the biggest legends in uh, in wrestling history. So I think you did pretty good for yourself. <laughs> hey, man, poor kid from South Texas did all right. <laughs> Steve, it's always a blast talking to you, man. It's been a great uh, couple weeks spending some time at your place and, and uh, doing this show right now, man. Hopefully we get a chance to see each other soon and uh, tear it up again. Hey, man, absolutely. Best of luck to you guys down there in AEW. Uh, appreciate you coming up to uh, my place, and uh, let's do it again sometime. You got it, man. Cheers, brother. Thank you, man. Cheers. Got it. 